Section 24 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 8, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Catherine of Berganza, Chapter 2, Part 1. The new year opened, as the old had closed, with a series of courts, balls, and other gaieties, in which the ill-treated bride of Charles took little part. Her court was considered at this time inferior, both in splendor and correctness, to that of her royal mother-in-law, Queen Henrietta, and she received a very trifling degree of homage from the time-serving courtiers, who were intent on propitiating her insolent rival. The profligate associates of the king endeavored to justify him in his neglect of the queen by depreciating her in every way possible. Her piety was termed bigotry, her moral rectitude, stiffness and precision, her simplicity of character, folly, and her person, which Charles had himself declared to be agreeable enough to please any reasonable man, was caricatured and ridiculed on all occasions. Catherine treated the attacks of these reptiles with silent contempt, and never condescended to betray her consciousness of their sting, far less to seek for vengeance, but the pain she felt at the unkindness of her royal husband, though patiently endured, was too acute to be concealed, and was observed by the whole court. It was three months since the king had supped with her. He now spent all his evenings with Lady Castlemaine, to whom he had given apartments at Whitehall, contiguous to his own. He also braved public opinion by carrying this woman with him to Windsor, when the court removed thither to celebrate the national festival of St. George, which was kept with the greatest splendor this year, in honor of the nuptials of the Duke of Monmouth with the young heiress of Bucklew. The boy bridegroom opened the royal ball in St. George's Hall with Queen Catherine. He was dancing with her, with his hat in his hand, when the king came in, went up to him, kissed him, and made him put it on. So glaring a violation of royal etiquette would scarcely have been made in favor of a prince of Wales, and was regarded by everyone as an intimation that the king contemplated declaring him the heir of the crown. The queen did not manifest any displeasure at this inconsiderate proceeding of the king, although tending to compromise the rights of any offspring she might bring, and it was generally reported about that time that she was likely to become a mother. There was at this juncture an attempt on the part of the creatures of Lady Castlemaine, Buckingham, Bristol, and Bennet, to strike at the lawfulness of her marriage, by introducing the following article in the impeachment they had prepared against the Lord Chancellor Clarendon. That he had brought the king and queen together without any settled agreement about marriage rights, whereby the queen refusing to be married by a Protestant priest, in case of her being with child, either the succession should be made uncertain, for want of due rights of matrimony, or his majesty be exposed to a suspicion of his being married in his own dominions by a Romish priest. The king was so highly offended with the Earl of Bristol for his audacity in venturing to challenge inquiry into his secretly performed Catholic nuptials that he forbade him his presence and threatened him with his utmost vengeance. An attack on this subject came oddly enough from the Earl of Bristol, who had become a member of the Church of Rome. Charles once asked him what had caused his conversion to that belief. May it please your majesty, it was writing a book for the Reformation, replied the earl. Pray, my lord, retorted the royal wit, write a book for popery. This inconsistent nobleman had from the first 
proved himself one of the most determined enemies of the queen, whom he regarded as the protege of Clarendon. Catherine was peculiarly unfortunate under this idea. She received very little protection and no sympathy from Clarendon, and was exposed to all the hostility of his political foes. Among the numerous vexations and difficulties with which she had to contend during the first year of her marriage, and not the least of them, was poverty. Having only been paid a very paltry modicum, of the income that was settled upon her by the marriage articles. She had the prudence to accommodate her outlay to her receipts, and made no complaints of the grievance, till she learned that an expenditure of forty thousand pounds was charged to her account among the expenses of the crown. She then took proper measures to inform the committee of parliament that, for the support of herself and household, she had up to that time received no more than four thousand pounds. So unparalleled an instance of economy in a queen was, of course, duly appreciated by men of business, who were only too well aware of the unprincipled extravagance of those on whom the money, provided by the nation for the maintenance of the wife of the sovereign, had been lavished. Few men treat their wives the better, for playing the Griselda on all occasions, and assuredly Charles II was not one of those. The moral courage displayed by the queen in refusing, after she had been wrongfully deprived of so large a portion of her income, to submit to the imputation of having exceeded it, appears rather to have increased his respect for her, as he certainly began to pay her some attention in public about this time. A great change took place in her manner also. She became lively, playful, and endeavored, by all means in her power, to conform herself to his majesty's humor." The pecuniary difficulties to which Charles's unprincipled appropriation of his queen's revenue exposed her were very grievous. In May 1663, she was recommended by her physicians to go to Tunbridge Wells to try the effect of the medicinal waters, but when the time came, neither she nor her officers had any money to pay the expense of the journey. Her council were called together to devise some plan for her relief, and they sent her secretary, Lord Cornbury. Mr. Hervey and Lord Brokner to the Lord Treasurer three different times to procure an assignment for the money that was due to her on arrear. But, writes Lord Cornbury to the Earl of Chesterfield, her Lord Chamberlain, his lordship told us that revenue was already anticipated, that he could not possibly fix any fund for the queen, but that for her majesty's present supply, his lordship would endeavor to furnish Mr. Hervey with two thousand pounds, which was all he could yet possibly do, and how far such a sum is able to defray her majesty in her journey to Tunbridge, your lordship is very well able to judge. Upon report hereof to the council this afternoon, they have ordered my lord Chamberlain, my Lord Hollis and Mr. Hervey, to attend the King, and to desire His Majesty to give orders to the Board of Green Cloth, to prepare all things for the Queen's journey to Tunbridge, and to command five thousand pounds to be immediately paid to the Queen for her particular occasions. What success this will have, your Lordship shall know by the next post, if you please to allow me to give you the trouble. The promised letter does not appear, but the sequel of the business may easily be guessed, for the queen did not go to Tunbridge Wells till July, when some part of her arrears were paid. Catherine accompanied the king on his state visit to the city on the 20th of May, when they dined with the Lord Mayor. A few days afterwards, she was rejoiced with the news of the memorable battle of Amexiel, 
in which the Spanish army, under Don John of Austria, was defeated with great loss by the combined arms of England and Portugal. The Spaniards were then so near Lisbon that it had been found necessary to set the fortunes of Portugal on a field. It was on this occasion that the Conde de Villaflor, the Portuguese general, on witnessing the gallantry with which Colonel Hunt and his regiment forced their passage up the steep hill where Don Juan of Austria was posted, exclaimed in an ecstasy, These heretics are better to us than all our saints! The weak-minded king of Portugal only rewarded his valiant allies with a present of snuff, which they contemptuously scattered on the ground. Charles II ordered 40,000 crowns to be distributed among them as a testimony of his approbation. Catherine of Berganza, whose heart had been torn with anxiety while the fate of her country hung on a doubtful balance, assumed a more cheerful carriage after the event of this battle secured independence to Portugal and the scepter to her family. The recognition of their rights appears always to have been the object dearest to her heart. It was her solicitude on this account that betrayed Catherine into the improper step of persuading her royal husband, very soon after her marriage, to send Richard Bellings, one of the gentlemen of her household, on a secret mission to Rome, to convey a letter from her to the Pope, imploring his protection for Portugal, for the sake of the good offices she was ready to perform in England, for the amelioration of the condition of the Catholics there, taking God to witness." that neither the desire of crowns nor scepters had induced her to become queen of England, but her wish of serving the Catholic religion. In the same strain, she addressed several of the cardinals, especially Cardinal Ursini, and recommended the Lord Abigny, her head almoner, to be made a cardinal, in consideration of his many virtues. It was, no doubt, in consequence of the earnest solicitations of Catherine, that her brother was at last acknowledged by the Roman See as King of Portugal, the sanguine hopes she expressed of the Portuguese connection becoming the means of bringing England once more into communion with the Church of Rome had perhaps some weight with the pontiff. The mission of Bellings was not unobserved by the vigilant foes of the queen, and it was probably the foundation on which the agitators of the popish plot built their monstrous fabrication, which caused the shedding of so much innocent blood. Catherine, as Queen of England, ought to have avoided all cause for suspicion that she was acting under the influence of the Papal See. But her enthusiastic zeal for the advancement of her own religion, and her love for her own country, rendered her forgetful of the impropriety of violating the established laws of the realm her husband ruled, by entering into interdicted correspondences and dangerous intrigues with Rome, a circumstance more extraordinary, however, than any practices of the queen in favor of the faith in which she was educated, was the avowed conversion of Lady Castlemaine to the doctrines of the Church of Rome. The queen was by no means charmed at the unexpected acquisition of so disreputable a proselyte to her religion. The relatives of the lady were excessively annoyed at it, and implored the king to interpose his authority to prevent her from going to mass, Charles sarcastically replied that he never interfered with the souls of ladies. The fact was, Lady Castlemaine's influence over the king was beginning to abate, and she was cunningly preparing, in case of being abandoned by her royal lover, to pave the way for a reconciliation with her injured husband by embracing his religion. It was observed, with great satisfaction, that she was absent from court on several public occasions, especially at a grand review of the king's guards, both horse and foot, 
in Hyde Park on the 4th of July, which Pepys describes as a goodly sight to see so many fine horses and officers, and the king and duke on horseback, and the two queens in the queen mother's coach, Lady Castlemaine not being there. Six days later, he says, I met Pierce the Carugian, who tells me for certain that the king is grown colder to my Lady Castlemaine than ordinary, and that he believes he begins to love the queen, and do make much of her more than he used to do. The next thing that excited the wonder and admiration of the gay world was the unwanted sight of the king riding hand in hand with Queen Catherine in the park before all the ladies and gallants of the court, and Catherine, according to the testimony of that excellent critic in female beauty, Samuel Pepys, looked mighty pretty in a very queer costume, namely, a white laced waistcoat, called in the modern vocabulary of dress a spencer, and a crimson short petticoat with hair a la negligence. Here also, proceeds he, was my lady Castlemaine riding among the rest of the ladies, but the king took, methought, no notice of her, nor when she alighted did anybody press, as she seemed to expect and stayed for it, to take her down, but was taken down by her own gentleman. She looked mighty out of humor, and had a yellow plume in her hat, which all took notice of, and yet is very handsome but very melancholy, nor did anybody speak to her, or she so much as smile or speak to anybody. I followed them up to Whitehall, and into the Queen's presence, where all the ladies walked, talking and fiddling with their hats and feathers, and changing and trying them on each other's heads, and laughing. But it was the finest sight to me, considering their great beauties and dress. But above all, Mrs. Stewart in this dress, with her hat cocked and a red plume, with her sweet eyes, little Roman nose, and excellent taille, is now the greatest beauty I ever saw, I think, in all my life, and if ever woman can, does exceed my lady Castlemaine, at least in this dress, which I verily believe is the reason of his coldness to my lady Castlemaine. Pepys was not the only person by whom this suspicion was whispered in the court, together with the hint that the king had been long weary of the thraldom in which he was held by his imperious mistress, whom he greatly feared, but had ceased to love, and that the principal attraction that had drawn him to her apartments of late was the company of the fair Stuart. Such was the laxity of manners in this profligate court, that Lord Blantyre, the father of this beautiful and giddy girl, permitted her to spend much of her time with so notorious a woman as Lady Castlemaine. The fair Stuart was very young, very vain, and full of coquetry. She was flattered with the admiration of the sovereign, and amused herself with his passion, so far as she could, without involving herself in actual guilt. The attentions of a monarch and a married man can never be innocently, much less safely, received by any lady, and though Frances Stuart never committed a lapse from chastity, her reputation suffered from her rash flirtations with royalty. The queen, to whom the Tunbridge waters had long been recommended, having at length obtained a payment on account of the arrears due to her from the crown, sufficient to furnish the needful funds for her journey, removed thither on the 25th of July. The king determined to accompany her, not, it is feared, from motives of conjugal affection, but because the fair Stuart, who had just been appointed one of Her Majesty's maids of honor, was in attendance. He returned to London, the 27th of July, but rejoined the queen the same night, after a sojourn of a month at this place, which in consequence of the predilection Queen Catherine took for it, and its convenient distance from London, became one of fashionable resort, the court removed to Bath. 
On the 5th of September, the King and Queen, with the Duke and Duchess of York, Prince Rupert, and all their retinue, came in state to Bristol, and were splendidly received and entertained by the mayor, by whom a grand dinner was provided on the occasion. They returned to Bath at four o'clock. One hundred and fifty pieces of ordnance were discharged in the marsh at three distinct times. From Bath, their majesties went in progress to Oxford, where they arrived the 22nd of September, and were welcomed with every demonstration of loyal affection. After spending two months very agreeably, in visiting the most interesting places in the western and midland counties, with her royal husband, Catherine returned with him to Whitehall. It was said that the good effects of the Tunbridge waters and the Bristol baths were counteracted by the uneasiness she felt at the devotion of the king to her new maid of honor, the beautiful Frances Stuart, but she betrayed no outward symptoms of jealousy against a giddy girl, whom she saw building houses of cards, playing at blind man's buff, and talking nonsense indiscriminately to all the court, but who had proved herself capable of eyeing the profligate Duke of Buckingham when he had attempted to address her improperly. More serious cause for disquiet had Catherine in the alarming signs of a renewed intimacy between the king and his evil genius, Lady Castlemaine indicated by his supping with her the very night he returned to Whitehall. That evening, old Father Thames made an active diversion in favor of the injured queen by inundating Lady Castlemaine's kitchen, where the water rose so high that it was impossible for the cook to roast the kind of beef that was ordered for his majesty's supper. When Mrs. Sarah, her housekeeper, communicated this disaster to her mistress, she told her with a formidable exclamation, that she must set the house on fire, but it must be roasted. So it was carried to the house of Mrs. Sarah's husband and cooked there. On the two following nights, October 11th and 12th, Charles supped with Lady Castlemaine again. Two or three days after his return to his old follies, all hopes of an heir to England for the present were lost, and the queen's illness was succeeded by a fever of so alarming a character, that her death was hourly expected, and indeed reported in the court. The king, conscious stricken at the sight of her sufferings and danger, gave way to a burst of passionate tenderness and remorse, and wept bitterly. Catherine told him, she willingly left all the world but him, on which he threw himself on his knees by her bedside, and bathing her hands with tears begged her, to live for his sake. She consoled him with much calmness and sweetness, telling him that she should rejoice to see him in a state that would put into his power to marry some princess of greater merit than herself, and who would contribute more to his happiness and the good of his realm. They removed the king by force from this agitating scene, but not till he was so much overpowered by his feelings as to be on the point of fainting, while the few Portuguese attendants whom she had been permitted to retain, distracted every one with their doleful cries and lamentations. The queen contemplated the approach of death with the courage of a philosopher and the serenity of a Christian. She made her will, gave orders for many domestic arrangements, and received the last sacraments of her church. Her doctors were very angry with her priests, for the length of time in which they occupied the royal patient, in performing the exciting solemnity of extreme unction, which they, of course, concluded would aggravate her fever and diminish the chances of her recovery. Contrary, however, to all expectation, she fell into a profound sleep, in which she remained with little interruption five hours. She then awoke, gargled her mouth, 
her malady being a spotted fever, accompanied with sore throat, and then sunk into sleep again. But there was no diminution in violence of the fever, her pulse beating twenty to the king's or lady suffixes, who were both watching over her. By her own desire she had her luxuriant dark hair cut off and her head shaved. The king, says Pepys, is most fondly disconsolate for her, and weeps by her, which makes her weep, which someone this day told me he reckons a good sign, as it carries away some room from her head. For several days the queen vibrated between life and death. Leone, the French ambassador, wrote to his royal master, that between the 25th and the 29th of October, the physicians entertained little hopes of her recovery. He says that after she had received extreme unction, she preferred two requests to the king. One, that her body might be sent to Portugal for interment in the tomb of her ancestors. The other, that he would remember the obligation into which he had entered, never to separate his interests from those of the king her brother, and to continue his protection to her distressed people. For the last of these requests, proceeds the cool diplomatist, we shall learn the success in time. For the other, I doubt not, he will very willingly satisfy her. The king appears to me very much afflicted. He supped, nevertheless, yesterday evening, with Lady Castlemaine, and conversed as usual with Mademoiselle Stuart, with whom he is very much in love. It was generally believed that this lively young beauty, who had made almost as deep an impression on the heart of Charles II as Anne Boleyn formerly did on that of Henry VIII, was destined for the same preferment in case of the queen's death. Charles, however, passed a great deal of his time in the chamber of his sick wife, and bestowed much personal attendance on her. Of this she was gratefully sensible, though her intellects were disordered by the violence of the fever, which greatly affected her brain. She fancied in her delirium that she had borne a son, and said, She was much troubled that her boy was but an ugly boy. The king being present to humor her said, No, it is a very pretty boy. Nay, replied she tenderly, if it be like you, it is a fine boy indeed, and I would be well pleased with it. The passionate instincts of maternity continued for several days to haunt the childless queen, and her thoughts, sleeping or waking, were of nothing but her imaginary offspring. On the 27th of October, she fancied she had three, and that the girl was very like the king, and happy in the idea, she slept several hours that night. At five in the morning, her physician unwittingly awakened her by feeling her pulse, and the first word she said was, How do the children? This pleasant delusion, perhaps, contributed to Catherine's recovery more than the pigeons that were applied to her feet, or the cordial prescription of Sir Francis Prujon, her doctor, which Pepys says, in her despair, did give her rest. Waller, with that exquisite perception of the female heart, which belongs to poetic inspiration, attributes, with greater probability, the almost miraculous restoration of the queen to the effect of her royal husband's tender sympathy. In the complimentary verses which this courtly poet addressed to her majesty on her recovery from illness, he alludes to the tears which Charles wept over her in the following graceful lines. He that was never known to mourn, so many kingdoms from him torn, his tears reserved for you, more dear, more prized than all those kingdoms were. For when no healing art prevailed, when the cordials and elixirs failed, on your pale cheek he dropped the shower, revive you like a dying flower. 
The recovery of the queen was, however, very slow, and her state continued for some time so precarious that Pepys records that he prudently sent to stop the making of his velvet cloak till he should see whether she would live or die. So variously at times are the minds of human beings affected by the consideration of the frail tenure on which a fellow creature is supposed to hold existence. The general report of Her Majesty's health on the 29th of October was, The Queen mends apace, but yet talks idle still. On the 30th, The Queen continues lightheaded, but in hopes to recover. She was not out of danger in the first week of November, when she was exposed to the fatigue and excitement of a state visit from Monsieur de Lyonne, the French ambassador, and Monsieur de Catu, a gentleman of rank from the court of Louis the Fourteenth, who had arrived from Paris the night before, charged with compliments of condolence from that monarch and his queen to Her Majesty on her sickness. Although Queen Catherine still kept her bed, and had occasional fits of delirium, it was a matter of royal etiquette that the greetings of the French majesties should be delivered to her in person, and that she should give them a gracious reception. It is to be remembered that it was the fashion at that time for kings, queens, and persons nearly allied to the crown, both in England and France, to be harassed with a thousand impertinent ceremonies in the time of sickness, and, the more imminent the danger, the more solemn and elaborate were the ceremonies, and the greater the influx of visitors, rendering the doubtful chances of recovery next to impossible. The luxury of privacy was never allowed to royal personages in those days. They were born in public, they dressed and undressed in public, they ate and drank in public, and they died in public, surrounded by a crowd of princes, bishops, judges, cabinet ministers, and foreign ambassadors, watching their last agonies, for they were never allowed the comfort of a quiet room in sickness, or a peaceful departure from this life. And notwithstanding all this pomp and parade of death, every intricate symptom of the illustrious patient's malady was attributed to the effects of poison administered through the machinations of the nearest of kin. As Charles II had been so indifferent a husband, and the reversion of his royal hand was already awarded, by report, to the fair Stuart and others, he was of course desirous that the envoys of France should have the opportunity of seeing and speaking to his poor queen, that they might, in case of the worst, bear honorable testimony for him that he had not hastened her departure. Late as it was in the evening, when Monsieur Catu arrived in London, he was immediately conducted to Whitehall by the ambassador, who knew King Charles was impatient for his coming. The king received him with much satisfaction, and wished him to see the queen directly, but as she was asleep, the visit was deferred till the next day. At the appointed hour they came, and were introduced by King Charles into the roulet of Her Majesty's bed. The king, according to the report of Monsieur de Lyonnais, took the pains to deliver the complimentary messages of the king and queen of France to Queen Catherine herself, which cost him some trouble, for the fever had rendered her so deaf, that it was only by going very close to her and bawling in her ear that she could be made to understand what was said. When she comprehended the purport of this really unseasonable visit, she testified much satisfaction and said a few words to that effect in reply very intelligibly. Since that time, continues the ambassador, who certainly never could have experienced himself the misery of being teased with such pompous absurdity during the low stage of a malignant typhus fever. Her Majesty finds herself better, and it seems to me that the care your Majesty has taken in sending to make her this visit 
has contributed more to her cure than all the doctors. They make us hope she is out of danger, but she wanders frequently still, which shows that the brain is affected, for the fever is scarcely high enough to cause that symptom. One must have seen what I have to believe this, for the meanest among the courtiers takes the liberty of marrying his royal master again, each according to his own inclination. But the most confident speak of the daughter of the Prince de Ligné, from which the King of Spain might gain some advantage. But I can assure your majesty that these projects are very likely to be broken by the recovery of the sick, and that few people will rejoice in it, unless it be the Duke and Duchess of York, who would otherwise see the fine hopes which at present flatter them, distanced, as it is said this queen can never bear children. It was observed by that universal observer, Pepys, during the queen's illness, that King Charles's hair had grown very gray, which seemed to afford an excuse to the monarch for adopting the then prevailing fashion of wearing a periwig, a mode that was introduced at that era of his restoration by the prudent roundheads, who were desirous of avoiding the sneers of the court by emulating the flowing locks of the cavaliers. In the course of three or four years, the cavaliers had the folly to cut off their envied love-locks and put on the periwig imitations, which their old enemies had devised to cover the evidence of their late party principles when loyalty became the fashion. Pepys, though he indulged himself even to extravagance in the article of periwigs, confessed that the Duke of York's hair, even when he saw it cut short, in order to be covered with one of those modish appendages, was pretty enough to have served instead. The ringlet periwig of the Restoration soon amplified into the tasteless fashion of the Campaign and Marlborough wigs, which were in turn succeeded by the endless barbarisms of perukes, bag wigs, tie wigs, cannon wigs, and the bob wigs, which, for more than a century and a quarter, caricatured the countenances of English gentlemen. End of section 24